0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. This is a holy book, George Dyson's Turing's Cathedral. In the beginning was the number. And the number was told not to just mean something. The number was told to do something. Sixty years ago, that happened, and that brings us here. I just learned that the entire entering class at UC Berkeley next year, 7,000 strong, are all getting this book to read over the summer. And then they are expected to know it uh, next year as they go to school. Not a bad use of a holy book and the author's total dream. (laughs) Special printing, 7,000 copies, just for students. They will tell everybody. Uh, George Dyson is here to speak to you. George. Thank
1: you. And what they forgot was that uh, I went to University of California for three months and dropped out because I couldn't stand things like assigned reading. (laughs) (laughs) This is sort of the irony of fate is that now I've produced the assigned reading that I ran away from. So (laughs) thank you all for coming out. It's a fabulous venue to be here. My opening slide is, is in honor of one of the Long Now founders, who I don't, who's not here tonight, but Danny Hillis, who really is, is one of the people who brings us all here. And he said it in one, he, what I'm going to say in an hour, he said in one slide, that memory locations are just wires turned sideways in time. And the, the converse is true also. So the, the, the story I'm going to tell you is an old story. It's been told many times. And it was sometimes with a bit of warning. And I think this warning from 1679 from, you know, 350 years ago is worth listening to today. So this is the story of Friar Bacon who wanted to build what we now call an AI. So he was trying to build Google, the the brass head that knows everything and can answer all questions. So, Friar Bungie and fire bacon with great study and pain so framed ahead of brass that in the inward parts thereof there was all things like in a natural man's head. This being done, they were as far from perfection of the work as they were before, that at last they concluded to raise a spirit and to know of him that which they could not attain to by their own study. So they, they, which was exactly what happened in the field of AI. They kept building these machines and they just weren't intelligent, so we keep looking for the spirit, and they were so exhausted after all this work that they said, we're going to go take a nap, and they left their assistant, their graduate student, Miles, to watch the head while they took a nap, and Miles uh, started playing on his iPhone and listening to music and and, uh, wasn't really paying attention, And, and then the head said, time is, And Miles, hearing it to speak no more, thought his master would be angry if he waked him for that. And therefore he let them both sleep and began to mock the head in this manner. Thou brazen-faced head hath. My master took all this pains about thee, and now dost thou requite him with two words? Time is. Had he watched with a lawyer, as long as he hath watched with thee, he would have given him more and better words. So lawyers have been the subject Ridicule for a long time. Then Miles talked and sung and just fooled around till another half hour is gone. Then the brazen head spake again these words, Time is past. And therewith fell down and presently followed a terrible noise with strange flashes of fire so that Miles was half dead with fear. At this noise, the two friars awaked and wondered to see the whole room so full of smoke but that being vanished, they might perceive the brazen head broken and lying on the ground. And that's what could happen. That we keep waiting for AI, and but it's so entertaining. We get so caught up in all the entertainment that it, it could happen. It could be over. It would be over. If AI did happen, it would be over just like that. There would just be a fraction of a second and... Uh, time was, so that's, I'm not going to talk about that, the, 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 uh, some people call this the singularity, and in any digital universe it is bounded by two singularities, there's a singularity at t equals zero, and there's a singularity at t equals infinity, and the t equals infinity we can't predict, and I'm interested in what happened at the first singularity, at the moment, zero. And I'm, so I'm going to tell you that story that, in a way, is of a sort of the same time span as my own life. I came to California with Esther, my sister Esther, who's in the audience here, in 1955. The only way to come to California is in a convertible on Route 66 with my dad, Freeman, and my mother, Verena, who took these marvelous black and white pictures, and we arrived in San Francisco, which looked like this. Fisherman's Wharf was still there. And if you were a kid from New Jersey, this this was the promised land. This was it. There was no, how could anyone go back to New Jersey after San Francisco? But my father took us back to New Jersey. So I did my best to come back to California, and several people, I'm only going to mention three, Old school Californians were great sort of heroes and mentors of my life. The first being David Brower. Here, this photograph, when he came, he led the 10th Mountain Division, mountain troops, and they came on skis over the Alps and liberated the Po Valley in Italy. And this picture of him was taken playing a piano that had been left by the retreating Germans. And Norman Clyde, who was a real mountain man, Norman Clyde did. But I think over half of the first ascents in the Sierra Nevada were done by Norman Clyde, who had been a school teacher and just left, went to live in the mountains. So I met Norman, through my mother I met David Brower, and through David Brower I met Norman Clyde, and I wanted to be Norman Clyde. And then I didn't meet Stuart Brand, but I was tremendously influenced by his whole Earth catalog. So I, I sort of put Stuart Brand and Norman Clyde and David Brower together, And that was me. I wanted to be that. Uh, And took off. Ended up going to Canada to work on boats. That's me on the far left. And in Canada, there were kayaks on the money. The money had kayaks on it. So to me, I was so happy in Canada. Oh, great. And one of the resources referenced in the Whole Earth Catalog was the Smithsonian Study of the bark canoes and skin boats. That became my bible. The whole Earth catalog told you where you could order it for two dollars and seventy-five cents from the government printing office, and I made it my mission to, to essentially do with kayaks what Stewart is now trying to do with extinct animals—to sort of decode their DNA and bring them back in in modern form. And I did a lot of that. It's in Vancouver, Canada. So this is the sort of DNA you have of these ancient. Kayaks that went extinct at the time of the Russians arrived, and I would try and replicate them, and that brought me into this long timescale where the people in the Aleutian Islands had been living that life, that in that same ecological regime for 10,000 years. Some of the villages were continuously occupied for 10,000 years, which is a, re- a record as far as we know in North America. And I sort of tried to continue that on into what I thought the future. Would bring that with mixed success, but but interesting, and I was able to do all that because I lived in a treehouse, 95 feet up in that Douglas fir tree at the top, and that in a way was like living in a clock. The tree trees have a completely different sense of time. That you know they they grow a new ring every year. So you're living in this sort of thousand-year clock. So when, when Stuart and Danny and Kevin and, and a few other people started trying to build the long-now clock, uh, I immediately be, became fascinated with that, and it, it resonated. That's the early version of the clock. So that was the analog clock, and I'm going to tell you about this birth of this digital clock that we all... Sort of live in now. So this is the moment, uh, the sort of the t equals zero, the big bang of this address space in which we all live. And at that so that is one thousand bits of memory that's on the glass face of a uh, what was called a Williams tube. Actually, I saw a picture of one today that's at Stanford. And and what we do all day now, where we're tapping on this glass of our smartphone or our computer screen. That's the direct ancestor of this. That These spots were actually spots of capacitance, a pattern of electric charge on the face of an analog World War II era tube that was used to store digital information that could be recalled at the speed of light. And that was sort of the moment of transition between the analog world and this new digital world that so consumes us today. And the person... Who did more than anyone else to actually with his own hands make this transition happen was Julian Heimley Bigelow, who, interestingly enough, would be one hundred it would be his one hundredth birthday today, March nineteenth, nineteen thirteen. So we owe him tremendous gratitude for what. What he did, he was a great scientist and a great mathematician, but his fatal flaw was that he was also an engineer. And <laughs> if, if you are an engineer, at that time, you sort of demeaned your your status among the academics, which, which was sad and injustice. But his, so his daughter, Alice, who was Esther's best friend, Explained how, at the age of three, while staying with an aunt, he found a screwdriver and removed all the doorknobs, and put them in a big pile. And it took him a really long time to put all these doorknobs back. And that was Julian. If you just if you went into Julian's house, there were pieces of his airplane, his car in the living room. He just always had things taken apart. And as when I was a child living with all these great theoretical physicists, Julian was my hero because he was the guy who really uh, took things apart and put them back together. So he had the remarkable fortune, just these things are always twists of fate, to end up working in World War II with Norbert Wiener, who here is seen in World War I. And they worked together. Uh, it's like Norbert Wiener had been kicked out of the army for inability to fire a rifle or stay on a horse. And <laughs> But when World War II came along, he really wanted to help. So he, he took on the most difficult problem in World War II, which was hitting moving airplanes with anti-aircraft fire, because you have you have minutes before the shell gets to where the airplane was, and you, you don't hit it. So you're trying to predict where will the airplane be in a few minutes, and the pilot is, is trying to be somewhere else. And he and julian just ignored all the critics and went full speed on this problem and this led us to the, the cybernetic world and there's george stibitz who was their supervisor you know complaining that they must be cheating somehow this thing is so uncanny they built this predictor that they would test by moving a spot of light at random in a room and they would try and target it and they were what they were doing was they were taking the path and reversing it in time and with a bunch of clever very very clever algorithms and doing a pretty good job. So Julian wrote this up in his maxims for ideal prognosticators. That uh, there are actually fifteen of them, and most of these, the fact that you have all in your pockets these microprocessors that work for billions of cycles without any errors, are largely results of his maxims for ideal prognosticators of, of correct, avoiding and correcting error and uh, Noise. And so the, the main one being that the, if noise is ever to be filtered from signal, it must be done at the earliest possible stage rather than after the two are tangled with other noises and signals, for the same reason that repeater stations are used on a signal line rather than filters and amplifiers at the end. And that's really the principle of modern digital computers, is, is a realization of that. You're moving all these. Bits. So in nineteen they wrote all these reports, which unfortunately were classified in secret, um, making the very good point that that in transmitting information, the transmission of a single fixed item of information is of no communicative value. We must have a repertory of possible messages, and over this repertory a measure determining the probability of these messages. And that in two sentences is Shannon Claude Shannon's. Mathematical theory of information, which which came directly from this. So then, in 1943, during still during the war, Norbert Wiener and Bigelow write this paper "Behavior, Purpose, and Teleology," uh, very far-thinking paper in sort of plain English language, and that becomes the basis of they f- decide to form a group, the Teleological Society, and that name scares people, so they coin a new name, cybernetics. And that becomes the cybernetics group and the cybernetics movement. And that, of course, is what captured Stuart Brand. So that's that's how we all got here, is through uh, Through that problem of trying to predict the path of, a, of an airplane. This is a great book, by the way. It's a, it's a Rolling Stone article. Was that, was that the first Rolling Stone article made into a book? I think, I think so. And... Uh, so Norbert Wiener's boss in World War I was Oswald Veblen, who so much more mathematics was done in these computing shacks at the Army Proving Ground in World War I than was done in all the great universities of Europe and, and America, that Oswald Veblen decided, how can we keep this sort of Los Alamos spirit going? And the result was the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, a place where people could just come and work on whatever they interest in. The year I was there, there was one person who spent the whole year studying medieval names for badgers. And, and the first director was Abraham Flexner, who believed if you let people work on all these useless things, occasionally something useful will come out of it, and and he was right. And they happened to be, they were funded by Jewish merchants at a time when when it was very difficult for Jewish professors to get faculty positions. And so they went out of their way to bring Jewish academics from Europe to safety in America, and they saved many, many lives. And this is sort of a score sheet of who they can hire in 1939. And all these people like Paul Erdos, Kurt Gödel, their lives were saved by these very small, uh, you know, stipends they got to come to, to Princeton to safety. So here, Princeton became this little concla- enclave of Eastern Europeans. This is a, a drinking party in the 1930s. They're all Hungarians from Budapest, except H.P. Robertson and uh, Amelia Wigner, who's from, from Madison, Wisconsin. Edward Teller, Johnny von Neumann. So H.P. Robertson then into that mix as a student who actually took um, particle physics from H.P. Robertson is a young British student, Alan Turing, shows up in uh, September 1936 in that, among all his people. And he brings with him the proofs for this paper on digital computing, on computable numbers, trying to solve this thing called the Entscheidungsproblem, which is massacred technically is the question of whether by looking at a string of code, can you is there any systematic way to tell whether that string of symbols is a provable formula or not? And that can be translated computationally sort of by, by looking at a string of code. Can you tell whether it's a, a virus or good or bad? And, and the answer was, no, you can't. But to get to that answer, he invented this abstract idea we now call a Turing machine, which is a digital computer that reads a tape and has all the time in the world uh, and all the tape in the, all, you know, all, can always call for more tape. And the one of the conclusions is that if you build one of these Turing machines, that's the only one you need, and everything else can be done with code. So that's sort of the origins of software. And that had profound, it's of course proved that the Enscheidungs problem was not solvable. And it also proved that the digital universe will always be, no matter how one country or one company or government tries to control it, it will, never, it will always be a wilderness, not a... Uh, it, even a fully deterministic universe is unpredictable, which sounds sort of contradictory, but it's not. It's very closely related to what, what Kurt Gödel did. That, when Turing's paper was published, he writes back to his mother in England, very unhappy, because only two requests for copies came in. Only two people were interested enough to write and ask for a copy. And it seemed like one of these papers that would have no interest outside of the the pure logicians. But then World War II came along, and the problem became very real of decoding digitally encrypted German messages to their U-boat fleet. And Alan Turing was brought in to work on that, made the statement that, that your next speaker, Nicholas Negroponte has something to say about that being digital should be more interesting than being electronic. But being digital and electronic would be really interesting, especially if you're trying to decode these German messages. So during the war, the group partly involving Turing built by an engineer, Thomas Flowers, built this machine called Colossus, which was a real Turing machine that could imitate any number of other possible machines, including they could use it to try and imitate the state of the German machine they didn't know the state of that was encoding these messages. And it worked. They actually were able to get a, a important fraction of these messages decoded within 24 hours, and we probably would not have won World War II without that. And in his paper on the Turing machine, Alan explains that he makes time discrete, that time, instead of being our kind of time that's continuous, time becomes just a series of steps. And the problem is that he calls it a clock and time. And it really isn't a clock in our sense of a clock that measures time. It's this clock in the sense of a, of an escapement that just measures events. And at that time, the British were way ahead in computing. Alan Turing, who was a long-distance runner. And then suddenly the Americans, led by Johnny e. von Neumann, they start trying to catch up because they have their own problem trying to build uh, nuclear weapons in Los Alamos. So the, the British are over in Bresley Park working on decoding signals, and the Americans are trying to build bombs. And those are the two forces driving the computing world. It was, was this arms race between the two sides. The, so this is the Trinity explosion, 25 microseconds, 25 millionth, so the second after detonation. So they're doing very long. In the film we saw, I think that was compressed 60 to 1. Here they were doing calculations that would run six weeks to calculate what happened in 100 shakes, which is one millionth of a second. So that's, that's more like 60 trillion to one compression of time. So this is our American machine, the ENIAC, which von Neumann got to see and work with, and, and it's... Absolutely captured him, and he essentially took all their ideas. Uh, von Neumann, Rich, Dick Feynman, Stan Ulam, who were at Los Alamos and the, had so much fun. So my father always says that, that when you know, when Oppenheimer said the physicists have known sin, he wasn't. They weren't. He wasn't speaking in a moral sense. He was speaking in the sense that they they had so much fun building this bomb. That was the sin. Not. He wasn't talking about using it. So von Neumann asks, what's next? I'm thinking about something much more important than bombs. I'm thinking about computers. He saw clearly this would be the next big thing. All these, most of the people I'm talking about died, unfortunately, very young. So von Neumann takes, puts all the ENIAC ideas together. He had a gift for just grabbing ideas and, and making them coherent writes this report that that actually Herman Goldstein puts only his name on, which rightfully really, really annoyed the ENIAC people, publishes it, and gets all the credit. And so he lays out how to build a, a effectively a modern digital computer, how to build an adder, how to do all this binary arithmetic. And then if you look closely, he gives us this, art, what we call the von Neumann architecture, but it should... Should be named something else. It's the central processor, the central control unit, a memory which is your your internal memory, a recording medium, input output, and then time. So where does time come in? There's a delay of t seconds, and he's saying, well, the t the clock cycle will be order of a millionth of a second. Some something will happen every millionth, a million times a second. So you have these pulses, but again, they're not measuring time, they're just measuring the next step in the number. So they, he decides to build this machine. Nobody will build it for him. He's annoyed with how slow everything is. So he says, oh, we're going to build it ourselves. They have their first meeting. And at that meeting, he lays the, out the commandment that words coding the orders are handled in the memory just like numbers. And that's what Stuart mentioned in the introduction, that this was this, up until this time, numbers were used to mean things like six apples seven oranges so on and now these codes what we call the order codes were actually they were numbers that were allowed to do things and Julian Bigelow was wrote very explicitly how that even though we write the programs we don't know what these numbers are going to do once we let them loose inside the memory of this machine and, and you saw that all coming and that's the, the sort of the fundamental transition uh, into a very new world, and that was Alan Turing's idea. Because in his original mathematical description of the Turing machine, he allows numbers to actually become machines. It's which is what you do when you, you know, you buy your iPhone and then you download apps. You're just downloading numbers that are the particular machine you want for whatever you're. In. And historians have argued endlessly. About, you know, did von Neumann take those ideas from Turing? Some people say, oh, he didn't even read Turing's paper. He was so brilliant. And it's not true. If you go to von Neumann's library, the library of the computing project, this is the, the, all the proceedings of the London Mathematical Society on a, sh- a shelf. One of these shelves you have to turn a crank because nobody goes there anymore to, to open the shelves. And there they all are, and they're all unopened, new, like nobody's read them since 1930. 30s except one volume the volume with Turing's paper and it's completely loose and torn apart from being read so many times by the engineers who who all told me that the surviving ones who I interviewed said oh yeah no when we got hired Bigelow said read this paper we're building Turing's machine and then von Neumann himself said let the whole world out, outside world consist of a long paper tape and that's that's his tribute to Turing now you didn't have an infinite amount of tape. A, a Turing machine could compute anything, but it might take the, half the age of the universe to do it. And they were, were trying to win the Cold War, so they wanted to do it faster. So how would they get fast memory? And RCA promised them, Neumann went to RCA, who were the wizards in electronics, and said, oh yes, we will build you this tube, and we'll call it the Selectron. And it was, the use a word that Esther coined, the vaporware of the 1950s, they they were promising effectively a USB memory stick, a stick that you just plug that into your computer, and it's four kilobytes of memory, and it's fast, and it never fails. And when they actually got the only computer that used these was the the Rand, the Johnny at Rand, and they ran a hundred thousand hours mean time between failures. So the Selectron worked great. Just RCA would not support it, so they never they never got enough to finish their computer. But it was a great idea. and this was the, they, So they had beautiful advertising literature for a product that did not exist. And it was the work of Jan Reichman and Vladimir Zorikin, a Russian. You notice that most of the people who gave America all this wonderful stuff were Europeans, particularly Eastern Europeans, who, who would have trouble getting visas today. So, they're trying to build this at the Institute for Advanced Study, where they only are, you know, there's art historians and, and Greek people studying Greek epigraphy and medieval names for badgers and so on. And they're trying to build a computer, and they, and so it's May 1946. Before they, end of May, they finally spend four dollars for electrical work. That's the beginning, of, and the next day. So it's, it's wonderful when you go through archives and you find these things. The next day, they hired Julian Bigelow. So they, they, von Neumann asks Norbert Wiener, who, who can I get to build this thing? He was trying to hire the ENIAC people, but they said no. So Wiener had one word, which was Bigelow, and, and he was hired. And that's, as he said, for the first five or six months, we were crowded into the boiler room. They put them down in, in the second basement. With a few workbenches, we set out. There was not even an office for me to go to and hide and think about circuit logic without having people walking over my desk and crawling all over me. And that, if you go find that basement room next to the boiler room, now actually not now they had to expand, but five years ago, if you went there, that was the main server room for the institute. So they they won and they. So Julian's job was not only to build the machine, but to publish clear and coherent progress reports every step of the way. And these reports went to dozens of other laboratories copying this machine, and that's really how we ended up in this world where where all the machines have this sort of common ancestor. They had this beautiful headquarters, but it was full, already full of scholars. Einstein was the... Second, Veblen was the first professor hired, then Einstein, then von Neumann, who's next to the common room. But if you look at who, we go to the second floor, who's above von Neumann is Dr. Goodell, Kurt Godel, who was even more sort of disconnected than Alan Turing from the real world. And yet this whole address space in which we live, in many ways, is Gödel's idea, that Gödel, who was, who was great friends with Einstein, wrote his great paper, that the first thing he does is credit von Neumann, who'd been working in the same field of logic, so when they're wondering where they can uh, put these computer people to, to write, start writing these reports... They, it turned out Goodall had an office for a secretary, but he didn't want a secretary. He didn't want somebody waiting for him to write. So that room was empty, and that's where the, the computer people started and wrote these reports. And what Goodall had done in his great paper that, that proved the incompleteness of mathematics, he did it with a sort of Turing machine-like trick where he allowed logical concepts to be encoded as strings of numbers, and then those strings of numbers. He, he was an Austrian who has suffered terrible numerical bureaucracy in Vienna, so he was familiar with this. And And the the these strings of numerical code were then given numerical addresses that could be manipulated with arithmetic. And then in this tortured way, he, he proved this result that changed all of... of science and math but he did it with this idea of addressing and that's what von Neumann did when he built this machine the architecture and the way then Bigelow realized it if you read that script it's let a word 40 a string of 40 binary digits which is how it became known as a word they didn't have bits yet be two orders each order is a command and an address so he was using this sort of trick. And all our computing today is just taken for granted it still works that way. We use commands and addresses. As Neil Stevenson would say, in the beginning was the command line. So this world that surrounds us, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the first computer. This, this is actually the 11th uh, electronic computer, not the first at all, but it's the origins of this address space, which is the important thing. That's how the internet and everything we do digitally today works, is because every string of bits has a numerical address, and by referencing those addresses, you can manipulate those underlying bits. And it started in this machine, where if you see those things that look like coffee cans, each of those is one of those cathode ray tubes with a Thirty-two by thirty-two, a thousand bits in each tube, and there's forty of those. And and Julian Bigelow's genius as an engineer was to build that thing just like an engine. If you look at it, it's a V forty <laughs> overhead valve engine because he was a engine mechanic, and it it runs numbers at a, at a terrific uh, speed. And so it was, it was brilliant. I mean, we take it all for granted that that's just microprocessors, oh, they are the way they are. But they are the way they are because they are all exact functional copies of that. Once you got that machine running and you got you wrote code to write on that machine, we were stuck. we have just been caught in this loop. It's like the, the origins of DNA, that we, we could have, do genetic code in all kinds of other ways, but once it was set three billion years ago, that's what we got. So he, Julian and Johnny had a gift for bringing in all these great, People to work on this who then distributed it other places um, and people to write the code. But where would they live? There was nowhere to. Princeton was still a hard place to live. So Julian, if he gave him a problem, he solved it. He went up to upstate New York and bought 11 of these war surplus mine barracks from an iron mine and sawed them in half and brought them to Princeton on railroad cars and built a housing project that, that's been transformed, but it's still there. And then... Endless debates with the director, where to put these people. And here he's saying, the only really usable space in our basement is that adjoining the men's lavatory, to which you're most heartily welcome. <laughs> and even that annoyed the historian. So this is Benjamin Merritt, who, who's actually the model for Indiana Jones. He was a, a paleontologist. I've learned with some dismay that a group of electronic experts has moved into half of the basement of our wing, the historian's wing of the Institute. Hope they move. Mathematicians in our wing over my dead body and yours, (laughs) and you have to remember that that Elias Lowe was a was a Greek classical Greek scholar, whose actually his grandson is mayor of London, and he. The vision of Abraham Flexner was this institute was where the mathematicians and the historians and the Music scholars and the artists were all going to eat meals together and 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 live together and play lawn bowl you know lawn bowls together and it, and if you go there even today it is so fragmented the string theorists don't sit with the solid state physicists and the astronomers won't sit with the uh, biologists and the and the medieval historians don't sit with a class it's completely it's like a high school they just have differentiate and then the, and then you throw computer geeks into that mix there's Gerald Esther whose daughters Deborah Esther and Judy Estern are our big players sort of brought us Cisco and a bunch of other things that, that make our world work today Gerald he then went to Israel built the first computer the WizAC at the Weizmann Institute and now the directors complaining because the the, the mathematicians are complaining about the computer people drinking not only drinking too much tea, but putting too much sugar in their tea. They've been especially unfair in the matter of sugar. It'd be better for the computer people to come up to Fault Hall at the end of the day at five o'clock in the afternoon and have their tea here under proper supervision. But the computer people got their revenge. If, if you are a, Classical historian or someone at the institute today, and, and you're working late on some paper, and it, at 11 o'clock at night, you want tea or coffee. The only place you can get it is the Shimoni building, built by a Hungarian computer programmer. So now the the, uh, the shoe is on the other foot, and all the funding of the institute, almost you know, Eric Schmidt is on their board. That most of their funding comes from the software business. So what they were complaining so much about turned out to be their salvation, and they've done very well by it. So it, but everything had to be done from the bottom up. So this is an and or gate, something we take completely for granted today, but somebody had to sit down with a piece of paper and say, okay, this is going to be our and or gate. And they're doing all this with analog vacuum tubes, which don't really behave in a, in a purely binary way, looking at things like this. How do you construct these communicating banks of cells that become shift registers, wiring down, somebody has to actually wire all this, put it together. So that's the first shift register, which is how the actual arithmetic gets done. It's very simple, can be done by just shifting digits. But Bigelow, in what he had learned in the war, made this 100% reliable by instead of shifting the bits directly from that one row of tubes. So next, they go up into the upper row, and only when the upper row says, okay, all the bits are here, everything's okay, then you can all go down. So they're never, the, which is, again, why, how the Internet works, because the bits are just flying all over the network on Ethernet, they're colliding, they're being lost along the way, but everything is checked. And, until, and if you didn't get the message completely, you ask for those bits again. And the very structure of the computer incorporates that. So that's You notice that's shifting register number seven. So they went through six iterations before they came to one that they decided to keep and replicated it, and Julian hired high school kids to do most of the, the actual physical machine work of building this machine. And here's Andrew Booth explaining that this computer did not have what we now call a clock speed. Everyone wants to know, oh, is your processor you know, 1.2 gigahertz or 1.4? This Bigelow machine had no clock speed. You could make it go as fast as you wanted or as slow as you wanted. And, and uh, that was a very important principle, and it, and it worked very well. The problem was the memory. They had this basically the arithmetic unit ready to go, but still no memory from RCA. Nice brochures, but no selectrons. Um, they had a few prototypes. This is actually a 256-bit selectron, but they they needed, you know, 40 of them to build the machine. So they started to Julian said, well, I'll make some high-speed memory. He builds this thing, which is magnetic wire on bicycle wheels. And they were able to get 90,000 bits per second. Input. They, wanted to, they wanted to be able to test their software. And they actually, so this would sort of be a simulated memory on, it was effectively like a RAM disk. on. And so that's a picture, that's a 40-bit word. And that, you know, that's the dividing line between analog and digital. It was very, very fuzzy. But they got, they got that to work. But then in the end, they heard that, Tom Kilburn and Frederick Williams in England had got a fully electronic digital memory working that we now call the Williams tube. The Institute got their reports. At that time, it was still just after the war, so everyone was freely exchanging all information with no patents or anything. So Freddie Williams had got this two kilobit storage on the face of a cathode ray tube. Julian immediately took the, uh, you know, a ship to England and spent two weeks at their lab and brought back, this was the lab in Manchester, the first stored program computer to get running. They brought that idea back. Jim Pomerine got it to work using just straight, off-the-shelf, or surplus oscilloscope tubes. But very, very clever hack. Putting an amplifier right in the face of the tube, sort of on Bigelow's principle, that you didn't want to send the signal very far because you'd get noise. Julian said that these... Memory tubes were the world's most sophisticated, sensitive detector of electromagnetic noise. So The the real problem with them was that they did remember. If any stray cosmic ray or something hit them, they remembered it. And uh, so that's the difference. You know, we now take it for granted. You can tell the difference between a zero and a one. The difference between a dash and a dot was this very fuzzy distinction that you had three-quarters of a millionth of a second to make that distinction and then they had what they called a clock, but it was not a clock in our sense of regulating the speed of the computer, it was a clock just in order to lay out the the pattern of spots on that tube, and then the memory itself uh, was independent of time. Every tube had its own logbook recording its flaws, the first line of defense if a tube stopped working because all your all your calculations would end if one tube went bad was to take it out and hit it and then and put it back and that's the fact that they logged these tubes and took these pictures that's why we have it's like the early plates from of when you see a nova supernova and you want to go back and look on the old plates at glass plates we have these pictures of the Birth, the dawn, the sort of first light of the digital universe are in these. So here you see this brilliant architecture of this machine that is three-dimensional. All Most computers before and particularly since are laid out flat. They're laid out like the map of New York City with everything on a flat circuit board or a plane. But Julian knew that short connection paths were necessary, like a cray was actually three-dimensional. That, so, he built it like the way your cerebral, flat cerebral cortex is folded into your skull. So, all the electronics was folded up and so made it horrible to maintain, but very compact and very fast and, uh, and easy to cool because all the cooling ran through the central core. And Johnny, who, who, so it became known as the von Neumann machine, but von Neumann himself would, he would be horrified if you brought him today and said, Look at all these computers. We we call them the annoying machines. Say, yeah, you guys are still building copies of that lousy machine that we you know we just built to solve one problem. We thought in 1948 you'd replace it with something else, and and Willis Ware, who's who's still alive, was it Rand? Really summed it up that. It, these were not von Neumann's ideas, but he put them together. He was in the right place at the right time with the right connections, with the right ideas, setting aside the hassle that will probably never be resolved as to whose ideas they really were. And there's a lot of other people who deserve the credit. But one of the main reasons we ended up in this von Neumann universe was because unknown to many others who would have been slightly horrified, he was privately consulting on private retainer for IBM during the whole time. So by modern standards, that was a little bit unethical. And IBM sent a limousine every month and they brought him up to Poughkeepsie and he told them everything and they whined and dined him for two days and then drove him back to Princeton and, and you know they got all the now to his credit, nothing was patented and it was all freely distributed to all the other companies, too. But he 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 wanted to push it as fast as possible. And he was able to get people like Julian Bigelow and Herman Goldstein, who was the director of the project, and they hated each other and couldn't work together at all, but through von Neumann had this ability to get everybody cooperating, including his boss at the Institute, Robert Oppenheimer, who was a really pretty two-faced guy. I mean, Oppenheimer has gone down in history as opposing... Uh, the hydrogen bomb and being a martyr to his principles and so on. But he was, he was, at that time, pushing full speed for it, too. And the computer was really, it was built in order to answer the hydrogen bomb feasibility question. This is, you know, does this date mean anything? August 9th, 1945. Okay, that's the day we dropped the second bomb. The first bomb, you could argue there was a reason for it, but there was no reason for the second bomb on Nagasaki, so... The day they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, this telegram from Edward Teller to von Neumann saying Stan and Nick, who've been embedded at the Institute in secret, developing algorithms for hydrogen bomb calculations. Now they can act in the open as coming from Los Alamos. So there's Stan Ulam, who came out from Poland for $300. They they got Stan Ulam out of Warsaw and... He was trying to prove that Edward Teller's idea would not work. And in thinking about why it wouldn't work, he of course thought of a way that it could work. And so we ended up with, with Ulam's uh, the Ulam Teller invention, which was the first thing that was really designed in a computer, like sort of most of our products today are designed. In. And Kevin's written a lot about that, about how you know computers are the source of all these new designs. So it was the first thing designed in the computer and a tremendous success. You couldn't test it experimentally. And a lot of that work was done by Nick Metropolis, Greek, who invented the, or it was Stan Ulam who invented the Monte Carlo method, but Nicholas who did sort of the hard work of, of getting it really operating. And all that early coding on the Monte Carlo problems was done by Clary von Neumann, Johnny's second wife, who he met at the casino in Monte Carlo. He had he had developed a system for roulette and it had failed and he had no money left and went to the bar and she remembered him from childhood in Budapest and bought him a drink and the rest was history. But it, but when I found that in, in in her letters that that her stepdaughter gave me, I mean I couldn't believe it that they actually met in Monte Carlo. So if you look at what they did with that machine and now what they had, they built this address matrix that was 32, each tube had 32 bits by 32 bits. So that's like four eight by eight chessboards. And then they stacked 40 of them up. So you can visualize an address space that's 32 by 32 by 40. And in modern language, that's five kilobytes of memory. That's all they had. That's not even that's one half second of a MP3. Uh, audio, very, very, very little. But in that memory, in the few years they ran that machine, from basically 1951 to 1957, they worked on these five main problems that computationally are similar but on very different time scales. So that central line of numbers is seconds, It's 26 orders of magnitude in time, from 10 to the minus 8 seconds, which is sort of the lifetime of a neutron in a chain reaction all the way to 10 to the 17th seconds, which is the lifetime of the sun. So they, they picked these five. And Neumann decided, you know, he wanted the most difficult problem. So first they did nuclear explosions, which was who their customer was paying them for. The money, it was sort of a deal with the devil. The military said, you know, we, you give us, you design us the weapons and you get the computer. And, and the deal was, if, you know, if you don't tell us how to use the bombs, we won't tell you how to do the science. And that was the deal made at Los Alamos. And if you really want the short explanation of why did Oppenheimer get in so much trouble, it's because he broke that deal. He started trying to tell the military how to use the bombs. And that's when they sort of said, no more Oppenheimer. you got to get rid of this guy because he broke that deal. That rule. So they worked on the nuclear explosions, then they worked on the question of shock waves over the time scale of seconds, what happens after the bomb goes off, very nonlinear. Then in the middle was meteorology. They worked on weather prediction, which seemed impossibly ambitious at that time, but they were very successful at it. So successful that by uh, 1954, they were getting a 20, they got the first 24 hour prediction in less than 24 hours of computing time. And and from then on, it's just progressed. So now we, we, we really get a pretty good three to five day prediction. And then von Neumann brought in a crazy Italian named, Italian Norwegian named Nils Baricelli, who worked on models of biological evolution over a time scale of, of years and centuries. And then he brought in Martin Schwarzschild, who worked on the evolution of stars and galaxies. So there's five problems on this different time scales. And if you look at where we are, we live in this world where like the fastest thing you can perceive is the blink of an eye, a third of a second, and the longest might be your whole life of 90 years. And if you find the middle, it's a working day of eight hours. And I—and whether that's a, I still don't understand, why is it that we appear to be sort of in the middle of this scale of time? That Sort of what we can pay attention to for a whole day is exactly in half of What's observable and what computers did was greatly enlarge our ability to work in these very short periods of time. And they also enlarge our ability to look at very long periods of time. And I think that's the hope for the future, that that computers, not only by being very fast, could design these, these terrible weapons and so on, but can do things like model climate and look at, bring back long extinct species and... and sort of change the timescale at which we operate. Von Neumann was very interested as all, this sort of seems to be a disease of aging physicists that become interested in the origins of life. And and, I mean, it happened to most of them. And it never seems to go the other way. (coughs) Have you ever met a biologist who became interested in physics? (coughs) No, it goes the other way. So, Von Neumann had (coughs) his own career as a biologist, but he brought in Nils Barrichelli, who also couldn't get a visa because the Italians said, no, you, you got to apply through the Norwegian embassy. And the Norwegians said, no, you got to apply through the Italian embassy. And it took two years to sort that mess out. So he was two years late getting to America. And immediately he gets there sort of the day they're running all these hydrogen bomb problems, and they let him have the machine late at night after the Los Alamos people have left. And he starts running these, he's trying to create, numerical organisms within this. He's the first person that I know to really talk about a digital universe. He publishes his first paper in Italian. If it's that easy to create living organisms, why don't you create a few yourself? So he tries. And so he's doing a very different thing. He's not running what we call algorithms. He's not running, trying to solve problems. He's allowing these bits to operate like organisms to reproduce to suffer mutations to compete against each other within this 5 kilobyte little universe and what you know Turing showed us was that one machine could run any problem and there's no better example than this this is the night of March 3rd this is the first night he starts running his simulations and he stops at 188 because the Los Alamos guys come back that's the memory location at which he stops the the creation of life, and they come to work on the hydrogen bomb. so you have this trying to create life and trying to destroy it on the same machine so i th- you can probably tell I think Niels Baricelli was a true prophet and saw things that that we still can't see as clearly yet that he was interested in how did the genetic language evolve and how did uh, you get these complex nucleotides, and he saw that as, as a digital, that these were digital codes. He, used to, he called, um, when Watson and Crick published their paper on DNA, he called DNA uh, molecule-shaped numbers. And and so he runs all these universes. It's not diverse enough, so he, he, he runs multiple universes and allows organisms to go back and forth between three universes, but he realizes no matter how many mutations we make, the numbers will always remain numbers. They'll never become organisms. You must you need not just a genotype but a phenotype. You have to let these numbers go out in the world and do something. And that's what software did, that suddenly codes evolved that, you know, some guys helped the code called VisiCalc evolved and it could do spreadsheets and suddenly it reproduced really well and was copied and and cloned and, and that's the world we live in, where these creatures, in a way, have sort of become loose. And he sees how that you need to be able to transmit code back and forth and let it sort of operate like proteins. And uh, so so we very, you know, if Baricelli was back looking at the world today, he'd see all his sort of ideas come to life, that... Humans developed the habit of transmitting computer programs, allowing a computer-directed factory to construct the machine needed for a particular purpose, which is sort of a technical definition of the Java language or something like that. That would be the analog to the communication methods among cells of various species. So and here he's talking about the that the genetic code evolved as a language used by primordial collector societies of Nucleotides, and I think that I think that is the key to the origins of life. That how do you explain these complex polynucleotides? It was very simple nucleotides behaving like like ants or honeybees, going out to collect amino acids and bring them back to the nest, and they developed this language to coordinate, um, you know, collecting the the nectar or all the things that ants go out and gather, and that's how you develop that complexity. And he always made clear that this wasn't he wasn't trying to build models. He wasn't doing this. To make things that looked like life, he was interested in allowing lifelike processes to evolve. And this is his last paper published, what it would take for these numerical organisms to develop a language and technology of their own. And when I talked to Julian Bigelow before he died, he I asked him about Nils, and he said, well, Barrichelli was the only person who really understood the path toward genuine artificial intelligence at that time. That that real Artificial intelligence was something that would evolve on its own within this digital universe, not be programmed or created. When I started digging around for all this stuff in the basement of these old buildings, there a box turned up that had nobody had looked at. It was completely covered in greasy teletype manuals. In so the bottom was a box that had the complete source code and punch cards for one of these digital universe experiments. And with it, a note from the engineer to Mr. Baricelli saying, there must be something about this code that you haven't explained yet. And, and that's really what, what drew Alan Turing and what drew von Neumann was that the, these purely sequential codes can produce results that, that cannot be predicted. And that's what makes it so interesting. Von Neumann dies in February 1957. And immediately, the institute gets rid of the whole project. They tell everybody to leave. They, most of them go to, off to work for IBM. Von Neumann had given Julian Bigelow a permanent membership in the institute, and, and Bigelow was stubborn and said, no, I'm staying. I'm not going to leave. And they realized that they couldn't make him leave, but they didn't have to give him a raise. So he lived there the whole rest of his life, making $9,000 a year, raising three kids and all von Neumann's dreams of sort of a school of computer science that would look at what these machines could do came to an end, and that's the last entry in the logbook, July 15, 1958, 12 midnight, off Julian H. Bigelow. So he had so much he wanted to still do and remained so bitter that he, he never went anywhere else. He just withdrew, only gave one or two talks, and wrote a few papers. A real tragedy So I'm just going to lead you through, and I'm not going to read all this, but these are one of the rare published descriptions where he talked about what what he saw the problems and where they were going, that we were so limited, and this machine that he had designed was a numerical machine built to answer this hydrogen bomb question, and it was terribly inefficient use of the computational resources. That It was purely serial. It could only do what programmers could write in a series of sequential steps. And that's not the way the real world works. So in fact, only one thing is going on in the computer at a time. We have, you know, The machine I'm running these slides on is running billions of cycles a second, but only one thing happening once. So it, to Julian, it was sort of a tragedy that we got stuck in just this very simple model of computing. And he had, I think it was a very good insight. This was really driven by the programmers, that, that electronic computers eat up instructions very rapidly because you know, they're waiting for a billion instructions a second. And, and how are you going to write all those instructions? So programmers are forced, uh, you know, you're saying, the computer is kept effectively, you're trying to keep it busier than the programmer, and highly recursive, conditional, and repetitive routines are used because they're notationally efficient but not necessarily unique as descriptions of real world processes so it's we're driven by that programmers write these iterative routines because that's how you can generate a whole lot of instructions and still go home for dinner at the end of the day and and so we're also limited in our in completely Julian saw time in a very different way that you could actually do computing that looked at time Not in this linear way at all. We sort of now we call massively parallel computing, or or backwards in time or forwards, and and we're so restricted in what we do. And then the fundamental problem was what von Neumann gave us was this address matrix that everything has to have an address, a good little address, a good little number, and so accomplishment of the desired time sequential process on a given computing apparatus turns out to be largely a matter of specifying sequences of addresses, of items which are to interact. And that's what, if you go to any of these companies down here that are writing software, that's what most of the men and women there are doing. They are just writing long lists of addresses because everything has to have an exact address or it crashes. Huge waste of time. So Bigelow says at the end that you know, it's entirely possible to build computers that address through different methods. And the obvious one would be template-based address, where you don't have to say where something is. You just have to, which is how biology addresses molecules. You don't know where the next uh, protein is. You just say, I want the next, or the next string of DNA that has a partial match to this template. And that is much more robust And time-independent, multiple things can be happening at once. And that we are living now in the transition to a world where that's what's starting to go on in the digital universe. If you look at what Google is doing, Facebook, other successful companies are starting to use template-based addressing. All the things are there for that to be absolutely viable as a way of writing uh, code, and we just aren't doing it yet. And, And a few people are. So Bigelow... You know, he's there at that world where, and that's the window they looked in the machine room, where what we're what we're doing with our you know, all our devices is, I mean, we are on one side, and on the other side are is all this processing power, all these bits, just all it wants is instructions, saying, give us instructions. And we're tapping and and connecting to friends and doing all this stuff, just trying to feed these order codes with the instructions that they want. It's just growing so fast. So, What Bigelow said to us, is that the main point tonight is that the maniac, the machine was called the mathematical and numerical integrator and computer, didn't have anything like a pulser in it. No clocks, no pulsers, no nothing. It was all that a large system of on and off binary gates, no clocks. So you had to have gates so one thing happened after another, You don't need clocks. You only need counters. There's a difference between a counter and a clock. Time is not the variable you keep track of. The sequence is what you keep track of. And that's enormously different from a clock. A clock keeps track of time, and a modern general-purpose computer keeps track of events. Sequence is different from time. No time is there. And that is the truth. The truth is that the digital world is based on sequence, and our world is based on time, and that's why there's this disconnect. Because every year, the chip companies go to smaller uh, scale masks and things like that, and we're getting we're getting faster and faster and faster. There's no limit to this sp- to the speed. It's, it doesn't have a governor, and it, it just keeps going. So if you were in the comput- computational, if you were one of Baricelli's organisms looking through the glass at us, we would be like the guy in the opening film, We'd just be slowing down. Just, you know, the cup of tea would hardly be moving. It would be so slow. And it just in 50 years, there's been this huge disconnect. It sort of ends with a sort of different long now where we live. Our moment is an eternity uh, in this computational world. And this is a book, if you haven't read, you have to read, because it's, it's one, again, one of these dark, uh, sad views of the future. But this is the future where everybody uh, is just in their room looking at the screen ordering from Amazon. And... and uh, in the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh, a woman about five feet high with a face as white as a fungus, <laughs> and never goes outside, and the machine stops. So that's one alternative. And the other one is that, that you know, we don't know whether, which way it's going to turn out, but that's the world that Stuart is moving us into so quickly right now with his new partner, George Church. This was a dinner in Los Angeles where actually Stuart and Ryan were in the next room with Danny Hillis and Craig Venter. John Brockman, Nathan Mervold. This was a meeting looking at, at programming cells with computers. And so George Church made this statement after dinner that we can program these cells as if they were an extension of the computer, which is true. I mean, Stuart's going to do that. But from life's point of view, I think it might be going the other way. If you look at life, life probably began this is our, our father's theory, but with metabolism that was then infected by replicating parasites and the infected host learned to adapt to the replicative parasite and take advantage of it and we got the modern system of, of replicating, you know, we we sort of do the bigelow thing of we repeat ourselves once we're analog creatures. And once a generation we repeat ourselves with a digital code to correct the errors, and then we go back to analog and then we have children. We go through this digital phase and we have children. Now life is very good at that. Life, you know, grass will grow up in the in the worst you know, place where nobody waters it. And I think it's actually the other way. That life is saying we can program these computers as if they were an extension of the cell. If you look at any molecular biology, um, replication has been a huge advantage to the organisms that discovered it. And computer replication is really advantageous. You can you can reproduce yourself over the internet. In you know, Stuart and George Churchill will be sending genes back and forth between here and Boston at the speed of light. And that, so, so from life's point of view, in a way that that that. Computer memory may just be the next form, the next sort of replicative parasite that then is take advantage of in order to evolve new forms of analog life. And I think Stuart wants to do that for all the right reasons to bring back passenger pigeons and dodos and things like that. But that's the world we're in. where That's the growth in transistors. If you follow that, gra- that graph, that's it on a log scale. When I last looked, it was five or six trillion transistors per second are being added, and they're all connected through this address space. So the last thing, I'm going to give you just an analog fable back to my world as a boat builder. It's my daughter who's in the audience, the little, little girl there, that I built kayaks, which are frames. So in the North Pacific, there were two different approaches to building boats. There were people who lived in the islands with no trees who built skin boats where they put a the f- frame of wood together and then covered it. And then there were people who lived in the forest where who built dugout canoes where there was so much wood they had to build a boat by removing wood. And now in the world of information, where sort of I come from the world of kayak building where I would, I would gather little pieces of information and put them together in a book. But now we're surrounded... You know, by so much information, we have to become dugout canoe builders and actually remove information to find the meaning. And so, we're, so I'm from the kayak world, and my daughter Lauren there, who works for Code for America down the street, is of this uh, world of, you know, this sort of rainforest where it's raining information. And that sort of the, the buzzword of last year was big data, I had to define it, so I'll leave you with my definition. Big data is what happened when the cost of storing information became less than the cost of making the decision to throw it away. And and that, this world that Julian Bigelow and you know brought to us is the world that Leibniz imagined again in 1697, about the time of, of, Friar Bacon. That's Leibniz's explanation of how the whole world is digital, and that if you understand ones and zeros, you can understand everything, and we're still at the, we're sort of witnessed the birth of that world, thanks to all the people who allow me to go into their basements and and save stuff and don't throw it out, the families who let me dig through their papers. And I just feel lucky to have lived, you know, been brought to that institute with, with, that's my sister Esther, and me and our older sister Katerina, and our mother Verena, who was a is a group theorist, who met a physicist, and they, you know, so there we grew up in the middle of that world, and 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 here we are, and I still have a little piece of that. If you want to write to me, you can send me an email, because so a little tiny piece of that universe that Bigelow created is now my email account in that same basement where they started. But if you send me, if you even send me one sentence, it'll that email will be more memory than the whole machine had that they built. And that's, that's it. So thank you. <laughs> thank
0: you. Have a seat. <clears throat> well, you got a gleeful audience here, I must say. What's the equivalent of the uh, Institute for Advanced Study today, says uh, somebody named Esther?
1: <laughs> that's a very good question. They, I mean, there are all sorts of institutes. There's about six of them that call themselves Institutes for Advanced Study. There's one in Singapore. There's one in Dublin, Ireland. Um, so it's been a model that's been replicated. But in the perimeter, Institute, I went to speak there when they op- opened their new building. Huge. They put 160 pure theoretical physicists together as if they're, look, they, they're trying to find the new Einstein. But if you want to find Einstein, you'll find him at the patent office filling out forms. You won't find him, sorry to say, I don't think you're going to find him at the Perimeter Institute. And So I, I think we cannot say. I mean, I think the important thing to remember about the Institute was not the work that was done there, but that they saved those persecuted people at a time when it was a matter of life and death. So it's the people who are It's the organizations that are going out of their way to give jobs to to people who really need them. And that goes for our country as well as as other countries. But I can't say there's one institute
0: that's that's succeeding in that model. So in that sense, they're a weird byproduct of Hitler.
1: They were. I mean, Hitler Hitler could not have, because he shook all of Europe.
0: And basically, these guys th- sifted out the all, the all, place to go. all the
1: intellectual property to wow. uh, to America. The same way we, you know, we're at risk of doing the same thing now if we if we're not careful.
0: Uh, related pair of questions from Kevin Kelly and Daniel Engelman. Um, Kevin asked, "Were there alternative schemes that could have birthed a different style of digital universe?" And uh Danielle asked, were there other divergent attempts to develop computing that failed? Was this an evolutionary process in 1-1 or was it something else? No, it
1: was it was like so many things I think in, in business and life and biology, it was, I think, a matter of luck and circumstance that, that I think the critical thing there was von Neumann had the right connections. He had the connections with uh, the government and the funding to make this happen, and you know, one model there was going to—it was sort of a winner-take-all mm-hmm. game—and and his design became the winner-take-all. But the but the British designs I think could have worked as well or better. Turing's design was in some ways more interesting. So why did poop out? The British didn't throw any money at it. I mean, they and they kept it secret. They, the the British, all the Colossus work was was held under the Official Secrets Act until like 1973. It could not be talked ah. about. So, so the Brit- British people who wanted to build computers had to come to America and work for American companies. But so all,
0: excessive secrecy, homophobia—they mm-hmm. helped end yes. Alan Turing's life. And,
1: and then, you know, and when I was researching this book, I I found a sort of smoking gun, which was there was a very successful company. It was At the time was much more successful at computing than IBM, was the Eckert-Mockley Electronic Control Company. And they built a machine called Univac, which had a different model of memory. It didn't have the von Neumann address space model. It had the linear w- delay line memory. But it, it worked quite well. It wasn't fast enough to do hydrogen bombs, but it was fast enough to do most of the normal things that people in normal business needed. And they were building a business machine, and they had an order, but they needed orders. They didn't have, you know, deep pockets. And they had an order for three machines from from the government. And I found a document where their security cleanliness was called into question and they lost their contract. Now, you don't know how or why those contracts were pulled, but it, it effectively killed their company. And the shell of it went to Remington Rand and sort of gave us the, the world we live in. But, the, but at, at one time... If you were betting money, you would put your money on Univac,
0: not IBM. So paranoia was, runs deep and kills everything well, it touches. Well, it's just, yeah. it
1: is true that it wasn't the—and I think the same is true of telephones and—I mean, so many other of our inventions did not go necessarily
0: to the best design. They went to the. So the Bigelow, theory is bitterly hanging on, and he's got this different notion that sequence instead of clock. Instead of time, could that have been deployed earlier than it was by Google and Facebook and the internet? Yes, I mean that's the tragedy:
1: is that Bigelow didn't go off. To all, I mean, if you, if you, when you look through his papers, which were just in boxes, he has all these invitations. Oh, please come to IBM, come to SR, Stanford Research mm-hmm. Institute here. Um, they were tr- Esther's were trying to get him to UCLA, you know, to, mm-hmm. to start a computer science department there. He could have gone to any of these places and and realize some of his ideas, but that stubborn bitterness kept, and there were family reasons. His, his wife was in very ill health, and he didn't want to leave, but it, it was a real well, transition. Was anybody tragedy. trying
0: to hire him away, and were they aware of his value and trying to employ yes, him Yes, everybody.
1: I mean, at that time, Julian Bigelow was the, this master who had brought this world into existence, and he had his idiosyncrasies. He suffered depression and so on, but... The, but he was in demand. I mean, he, he, he could have gone anywhere. And so, and, but he said, you know, von Neumann gave me a permanent membership here and I'm sticking to it. And it's, it's sad. How's he
0: regarded in Princeton now? Well, he was regarded rather poorly, but the, we have
1: a, there's a new director at this Institute who has completely taken, has formally apologized to the family on behalf of his Because why?
0: That something happened at his funeral, they didn't treat him right or something? mean, why i mean yeah when, when he when, died what happened yeah. at princeton when well when he died
1: we tried to have a the family had a memorial service at the quaker meeting house which is mm-hmm. across these woods from the institute and then freeman our father tried tried to and i tried to have a reception in the main hall of the institute and the administration said no he's not he's still <laughs> unwelcome and uh and that changed in ten years that's because changed. of your book well because yeah, and because of look who's on their board I mean Charles Shimoni Eric Schmidt Jeff Bezos um, Nathan Mervold Marina von Neumann I mean he, you know it's 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 time to bury that hatchet and in fact I go to Princeton tomorrow and they are celebrating his centenary and the and the, the other side of the coin is the family is donating the paper the, these papers to the Archives. So there's a happy ending, but it's sad that this, you know, that this could not have been resolved 40 years ago.
0: Pierre Morris asks, "What part did women play in the early days? Uh, the women appear in the slides. It, it seems there's the Clara von Neumann. Uh, is she being secretarial, or is she doing something? No, she profound?
1: was writing real bomb code. And the and the, <laughs> you know, the the prevailing view." Which again, I've tried to counter is that the, you know one of the views has been oh the women just did arithmetic they they didn't they wrote the codes which is a lot of clerical work but they didn't they didn't need to understand the physics but if you read Clary's private letters back and forth to Johnny she's deeply involved in the physics she's because these calculations if you're looking at one hydrogen bomb problem for six weeks it might be running and you have to look at what's what's happening with the neutron capture the fission and so on and and modify your parameters and your mesh size as the physics progresses. And she was fully familiar with that. And and there's an interesting reason, why I think, why she was so good at it. Because when the war started, everybody wanted to work in the war effort. Mm -hmm. She got a job at the Population Research Institute in Princeton, Mm -hmm. modeling populations of what would happen to Europe... You know, even questions like how how low could the Jewish population go and still recover? Things like that, and oh, and and that's exactly that's nuclear physics. It's looking at at reproduction, what critical mass, population density, taking censuses. If you, if you look at the language of, of Monte Carlo, it's they, they take a census at, at every time step, and, and that's and then and as to women, there were many other women. The woman who really ran, physically ran the computer. The the person who when they had problems that perplexed everybody else, they went to Hetty Selberg, who was Otley Selberg's wife, who had mm-hmm. been a physics teacher mm-hmm. and also lost all her family in the concentration camps. She escaped to Scandinavia, married Otley Selberg, and, and couldn't, wasn't allowed to teach science in New Jersey schools, so von Neumann gave her a job, and she, she ran that machine and understood it to a degree that nobody else
0: did. So before computers were machines, computers were people, people who mostly did women. Why? I think they were available and they were very good at it. They were
1: meticulous and, mm-hmm. and they weren't all women. If you, if you actually you look at the photographs of like the WPA ran these big numerical mm-hmm. computation projects during the 1930s, they tend to be mostly women and black men. Figure that out.
0: Oh, no. So... Monte Carlo is pretty interesting. Uh, It was Stan Ulam's Ulam's invention. Do you want to tell the story of how he invented it? Well, Ulam, one of his friends told
1: me he was a combination of the the most intelligent and the laziest person he had ever met. So he had brilliant ideas, but he didn't like to do the the hard work of executing (laughs) them. Yes. And. and he left Los Alamos. He could see the right... It looked like Los Alamos would shut down. They designed the bomb. The war had been won. It would be over. So he got a job teaching at USC and almost immediately came down with viral encephalitis, a terrible brain infection. Almost died. We had to open up his skull to let the pressure out. And they didn't really understand that at that time. It was, it was a pretty medieval thing. Well, we're going to cut a hole in your skull and hope you get better. <laughs> For the best, right. And... <laughs> And the doctors told him to, he had to recuperate for six weeks, and they told him to stop thinking.
0: (laughs) You got a hole in your head, don't do anything, you'll leak out. (laughs) So his, but he'd been, you know, working on
1: all these neutron multiplication problems, these these branching processes, which were the heart of what they were trying to do in Los Alamos, And, and they didn't have the computer power to do them. In, in brute force analytics. So he, okay, I'll stop thinking, he started playing solitaire. He played solitaire over and over, but then he started thinking about, how could I predict how a solitaire game is going to turn out? It, mathematically, because he'd you know, Ulam taught, as a mathematician, we grew up with mathematicians, they see everything as a mathematical problem. How can you predict a, a card, you know? And then he realized that, that a much better way to get the answer was just play a hundred solitaire games and, and and sample it, and that was the origin of Monte Carlo, which is effectively a, a, a way of of taking a sort of random walk through an undefined space and coming back with a sample of what. The, and it was an, immediately effective; it immediately solved these bomb problems. It's used and you know it's probably the most successful algorithm ever. It was a hack. It was, it was it was yeah? It was a, it was a hack. Of, it was a way of playing. It was a way of gambling and finding the answer. And. And you but you needed the interesting thing was to do Monte Carlo you needed random numbers so there, there was a great shortage of random numbers they couldn't get enough random numbers and so the, the guys at Rand in you can't make this up in Santa Monica they published a book of a million random digits to do Monte Carlo <laughs> <laughs> and which you can still buy and and, and and the preface says, du- you know, due to the nature of this book, we did not proofread the text.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And if there's some non-random numbers, don't sue us, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't really look. And now, and now real hackers have
1: studied this book, and actually they're not truly random. It's a little bit off. So,
0: How much do you lose in Monte Carlo if you're, if you're not quite a true random? You don't,
1: you don't lose that much, but it, it can become important... You know, it's like cryptography, that a little mm. bit of weakness can be dangerous. And
0: so is God a Monte Carlo player? The sense I get from some of your text is that Monte Carlo discovered it was beginning to approximate how things happen in the world.
1: Yeah, that's what's, That's this interesting twist. It's sort of like what happened in biology, that, you know, that we used to think, I mean, in the old days, sort of mathematicians, if you gave them long enough, they would come up with a true formula you know Newton's style for the way things really were, and then you could calculate it exactly. This this beautiful Platonic kind of world, and then quantum physics came along and showed us that well, the real world really isn't that way. The real at, at its heart, the real world is not billiard balls. It's statistical noise, and and it's probabilistic. and And Monte Carlo is this probabilistic simulation, but in reality, Monte Carlo is closer to the way the world really is than this pure ideal that that people had hoped for. So I think that's one reason Monte Carlo has been so effective, because it's
0: the way the world really is. So to come back to the the point in your title, um, that the digital universe, which we now occupy at least part-time, and the physical biological universe, which we occupy part-time, are running at different rates. Say more about that. Well, it, it's something we've never seen before.
1: We have no idea how it will end up. And and you have to remember the, these numbers are living in their own world on the other side of that mirror, that glass. Mm-hmm. And they're eventually going to discover what Julian Bigelow was talking about. You know, they're going to realize, <laughs> if, you know, if, if the cells in the computer, you know, say, I haven't done anything for... 100 billion cycles. Well, I haven't done anything for 110 billion cycles. You know, Why don't we do something about that? And and in a way, that's what cloud computing is. I mean, all these things that are suddenly happening, and cloud computing is just a way of, of more efficiently using the resources so the wait between these steps is not as great, that you're not waiting. You know, computer, if, if I don't have an instruction for it, the cloud says, "Well, here's some instructions. Work on this, and, and everything is effective." And that's why, again, why, why Amazon's cloud business is the most successful thing they've done because they're they're building, you know, the big, the, the classic computer that runs at 000001 percent efficiency. Maybe they're getting it up to 1 percent or 2 percent. And and but we know that in biology, things are are much more efficient. And and where that that's sort of avoiding your question, but the, the question is once. Evolution has been sort of an arms race mm-hmm. of organisms against each other. And once right. they start playing that out, uh, in what you're trying to do, letting, you know, cause what's, what you're going to run into with these passenger pigeons that, that, to do the actual, uh, animal husbandry, which is the other side of it. I mean, which, which you talk about in your talk it's one, I mean, if you haven't seen Stuart's talk, watch it, um, you know, you're talking about to, you have to find a mother and father regular pigeon, and you have to give them an egg, and they you still have to hatch a real egg to get this supposedly passenger pigeon back, and all that takes some time. You have to hatch eggs and wait, and you're going to find that most of them are not going to turn out. I mean, you know, the pigeon's going to die or it's not going to live. So, it, inevitably, it will be much to your benefit to do what the bomb people did and start simulating some of this in the Computational world to mm-hmm. predict whether the genome is going to be viable, and right. and and then then suddenly you you know we are in this world where evolution is is going to be running on the faster.
0: Sure, so are we time the track. larval form of digital organisms, or are, are you, they the larval form of biological organisms? You
1: know, I mean, you, you I think you hope that it ends up with sort of both the way the way things have worked a lot in the real world, where where you end up with a symbiosis that that.
0: Is that really possible with this rate difference because it's not only that things go in a way so much faster in the digital world, but it's not constantly faster, it's acceleratingly faster yeah and that's just, tell a biological world is not accelerating at all.
1: Right? Yeah that's the explosive part we don't we don't know where that's going to go. We just have no clue. We just hope that they in their world they still need us to take care of them and, and, <laughs> and we'll, so, you know the other. You can probably tell I love these books that look at the, the, the dark outcomes. And the other one is Ape in Essence, which also is set here in California. where after oh, a nuclear war. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it was Aldous Huxley. It, 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 nobody knows about it because he was so famous for, for his other books. But, but there, he's concerned with the question of, well, it, once replication becomes unreliable, society will disintegrate. And so the the people from New Zealand show up 100 years after nuclear war, and they land in Los Angeles, which is run by baboons. The, the, the evolution is starting to run backwards. But the scarier thing is is what if replication becomes perfect, which is what what we have with computers. We have perfect replication, and we you don't want that in biology. I mean, like a worse nightmare. I you think just throw than, that
0: book of random numbers at it, can't you? You
1: you can, but will people want to? You know, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a scarier thing to think about. What if what if people can get exactly the offspring they want?
0: And well, this is, yeah, this is Gregory Bateson's old worry that that uh, pure intention purely realized is always pathological. i uh, uh, worry about that. Well, another book <laughs> that Aldous Huxley wrote is called Time Must Have a Stop. And uh, alas, we must have a stop. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve.